Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. <laughs> and as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello. I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. Drew Forsyth first appeared on stage in Sydney over 40 years ago. He grew up in far north Queensland and his prolific career on film, stage and television has seen him become one of our favourite actors, equally adept in dramatic, comic and musical roles. A graduate of NIDA, he spent several years performing with the Old Toad Theatre Company and the exciting new Nimrod Theatre Company in a variety of roles that included The Seagull, Much Ado About Nothing, The Life of Galileo, Servant of Two Masters, Twelfth Night and The Club. Among his legendary performances, the title roles of the heroic Tonino and the foolish Zanetto in the Nick Enright Terence Clark musical The Venetian Twins are always recalled in awe. The show was written for Forsyth and he originated these dual roles for Nimrod Theatre Company in 1979 and subsequently in two revivals. Drew is presently performing in the Sydney season of The Wharf Review, titled Can of Worms. The show is now playing at the Seymour Centre and is the perfect tonic to the tumultuous year in politics. It delivers the catharsis and laughter we all need at present. Drew is erudite, engaging and a major contributor to the Australian theatre. At long last, Stages welcomes the brilliant Drew Forsyth to the podcast in a reflective and insightful conversation. Well, good morning, Drew Forsyth. Uh, For the listeners' sake, we're recording on a Sunday morning, which is your day off from the current season of The Wharf Review. Well, actually, tomorrow's my day off. I've got a five o'clock show today. Oh, have you really? Yeah, on a which, Sunday? Yeah, but five o'clock show is a bit like a, a, a breather in a way. Yeah. It's, it's uh, late enough to have a sleep in and a good lunch and early enough to be able to come home and have a nice dinner and, uh, and even a supper. It's a, a late matinee. It is. Yeah. And we've got good houses then too. It's, I mean, it's the kind of show I'd... I love going I on like a Sunday at five, yeah. Yeah. Very comfortable, very easy to get to, easy to get back home. Because you've fulfilled most of your day and, yeah, you're home early. Yeah, yeah. That's good. And it's a short show. Mm. Well, it's a, it's a curious serendipity um, that we are recording on a Sunday morning because all of my life I grew up with my father religiously tuning into the ABC on a Sunday morning with Macca on a Sunday. Oh, God, yeah. And in my research, I discovered that you wrote and performed. No, I no. didn't. I didn't. What's, what's that doing? No. There goes uh, my so, research out the window. Well, it's it's on Wikipedia, and I, I don't know how to change those things. So I, right. uh, I, I'm continually embarrassed. Macca wrote those. Um, I might have thrown in the odd word here and there, but no, he, he wrote them. 
based on the 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 stories that he's heard over the over the past year he just sort of cobbles them together and I sing them his mother was a, a big fan of Venetian twins and uh, she told him to interview me or I think that's this was way back and uh, and very early on he got me to come in and and sing it's macaroni in the morning turns my wick around that one but he wanted me to sing it like Zanetto from the Venetian Twins, the dumb twin. So uh, <laughs> that's basically how I did it. And that audio is still still used today, I guess. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he's still going. He's had a long reign there at the ABC. Very popular in the country, particularly. Yes, huge listenership. Yeah. 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 So you're, um, you're mid-season, well, you're playing till December 23rd in Sydney, or yeah. the, the current edition of The Wolf Review, yeah. as co-creator, writer, director and uh, performer. It's been going for, what, 22, 23 years? We started in 20, and in some of those years we did two shows in the year. So we've done probably close to 28 different mm. variations of The Wolf Review. Um, and it's changed over the years. It began very much uh, similar to the Three Men and the Baby Grand that we used to do at the Tilbury, which we started in 1990. Um, and, and that was a fairly uh, social comedy, um, and silly comedy, really. Uh, more like vaudeville. Um, Jonathan and I used to do a, a radio show where you know, this, this dreadful little soap opera and with him narrating it and me just doing the sound effects and getting them all wrong. And uh, that was the kind of thing we did, very, very much like a, a, a vaudeville act. Um, and we started, the, the first review had a little bit of politics, but a lot of silly. I think there was a song that was just all about poo. So uh, that was the standard. We were looked like setting. <laughs> but we ran out of poo after a while and, uh, and ran out of silly and turned more and more to politics because it just seemed to be providing us with more and more material. And material that, that would last. Um, things like... Uh, refugees. I think it was was it twenty one when the Tampa came, yeah. and it's uh, we're still doing a, a piece about refugees. Someone complained that uh, one of the critics complained that it, we're we're doing this piece about refugees, and it's not so much about refugees. It's about the cold heartedness of the Australian public that allow the policies that exist. To, to go on. Mm. Uh, if we were a caring nation, that would have been we would have got rid of it decades ago. And that's what the piece is about. It's it's about go far away. We don't want you here. Yeah. And it seems to have um, been spiked by the pandemic. Yeah. I think um, people are even more cautious about people coming. And I understand that. I'm cautious about people to come and 
live in this apartment block where I live because mm. you well, I don't want to get sick. Yes, because you're all living close together, aren't you? We are living very close in this building. Mm. And also, if one of us gets sick, the show's off. Mm. And that's it. And we're, we're, uh, we're producing it ourselves now. So No understudies? No understudies. Well, we never have had understudies. Yeah. Although we have called people in on occasions to take over um, when people have got sick at very short notice. Paige Gardner came in one year and did a brilliant job at very, very short notice. Um, yeah, so uh, we, we, to get back to what we were saying, um, we targeted more politics and, um, and people's attitudes more. With subjects like the refugees, you are offering uh, the audience also a, a form of catharsis, I guess, an opportunity yeah. to to uh, have, have some sort of um, mirth release yeah. in order to deal with the, the horrors of, of that scenario. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they respond with a laugh to lines like, this country wasn't built by people just turning up out of nowhere. And they <laughs> laugh at that, yes. but, uh, <laughs> because it's true. Yeah. We did. Yeah, <laughs> we did turn up out of nowhere. You know, um, but... And they they respond um, enthusiastically to a, a piece like that 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 says um, think a bit more closely about something. And satire is not just comedy. Uh, and I've I've done several pieces over the years that have had a darker edge to them. Uh, I mean, the Murdoch piece that we do in this show is there's not many laughs in it, and it's not intended to have it have laughs um, the Bob Carr piece is not particularly funny yeah. but it uh, I hope it uh, it actually says something that makes people think and your portrayal of the Queen is most respectful we get a few chuckles from it but, yes. but it's done with um, with great dignity and uh, yeah. it was terrific comment from her perspective yeah I, I'm I once refused to uh, shake the governor's hand because I, I was—I wasn't a monarchist. I was a Republican. I still am a Republican, but I—I've uh, become very fond of the Queen over time, especially since Donald Trump came along, and she became like a, an example of what he should actually be thinking about. Uh, and in 2019. Uh, uh, Jonathan and I wrote that one. We Philip had retired, and and I wanted to do. It was the year that he went to visit the Queen, and there was this wonderful image of him walking ahead of her, and her trying to get around him, and her little head popping out on one side, and then at the other side, him looking around like, "Where the fuck are you?" Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I wrote a piece with him meeting the Queen and her giving him a very stern lecture about what it is to be a leader for life and, uh, and what, what purposes dignity and, and honour serves. Um, so, so it was a very serious piece. I remember last year's review also, the, um, that, that wonderfully poignant 
uh, Sounds of Silence. All right. Yeah, that was another one I did. New York City and... uh, Yeah. I was sitting at home watching, I think it was a Four Corners that was looking at New York during the pandemic. And it was particularly bad. And it was like, I think it was about March or April in 2020. And it was before we'd gone into lockdown. Um, and all I could hear in the background were, were the sirens and it just occurred to me this is the sound of sirens and the sound of silence and so that one just sort of flowed <laughs> and, and then as the year went on I was think, we were thinking oh we won't be able to do that because everything is going to get better and we'll be fine and, and then it actually it just got worse and worse and worse and became more and more relevant mm. And yeah, and I love doing that. So, and I think the audience enjoy a moment where they can sit back and not laugh, but yep. just reflect. Take it all in. Yeah. yeah. You inhabit, have inhabited, continue to inhabit various personas in the review, whether it be the Queen or Bob Carr, or Barnaby Joyce. Yeah, my Barnaby Joyce is not very good. I, uh, I prefer to do Barnaby Joyce's. Uh, as Johnny Cash, which, which I did him many years ago, I wrote a piece. And see, and I was born out Tamworth way with a dad from New Zealand who decided to say, there was country in my blood, I had no choice, that kind of thing. <laughs> it's easier to do him like that, where you place him in some other persona and you don't have to actually uh, redden your face with, with makeup to beetroot. get that beetroot look. And So is there a politician that's defeated you or... I had great trouble doing Turnbull. Right. I, I, I did him, but I never did him well. And I did him as Jimmy Barnes, a you know, working class man, which was done as irony. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, I, I, I could never quite get his voice, and I didn't look like him. I, my, the, it's often it, it depends on the shape of your face, or how you can twist your face. It depends on the the timbre of your voice or where you can place your voice. And Barnaby Joyce's voice is somewhere... He he tries to get a deep voice, but he does it in his nasal passages. And uh, I can't quite get it it there. My voice tends to sit in in my chest. And um, I I can do voices up there, but it, 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 it defeats me. I, can't, I, can't. I guess you've always, you three have always got the opportunity to handball it on to, to Jonathan or Phil. <laughs> well, to, yeah. To do. Although you both, well, the three of you are very physically different. We are. Yeah. And, and there are certain things that, uh, because of our height or sh- body shapes, land like Philip does a terrific Kevin Rudd. And uh, he put a, put a wig on and he, he looks like him. Uh, Jonathan does a great Paul Keating. Uh, I was looking at him on the on stage the other night. He he had his back to me, and I thought, "Gee, you actually even from the back you look like Paul Keating." <laughs> um, and then he has a trouble. Jonathan's been having trouble with this show because he plays a politician in in one scene, and he plays um, Perite in another scene, and he has to. He he had great trouble trying to stop himself 
sounding like Paul Keating because it becomes so natural. Mm -hmm. Um, And those those things do take over too. You certain characters start to creep up and inhabit you (laughs) a little more than you you might want in terms of you know. um, uh, vocal intonations and things like that. Might. But that can have it ha- can have it uh, generally with actors. I think the role that you're playing, you carry on. There's a residue during the day. Absolutely, from yeah. the performance that you're giving. And and what creates a performance is attitude more than anything. I mean, you can put on the the physical attributes, and that and that can sometimes enhance an attitude. But an attitude can sometimes well, it's, it's the old uh, dichotomy of do you go from the outside in or the inside out? Well, I think there's a mix of both, and particularly in playing well-known politicians and people who we, who we identify with or can identify. Um, but attitude is very important, and, and that comes from within. And uh, like uh, Amanda... Bishop does uh, a Jackie Lambie, mm. and uh, if you put on that aggressive tone, you're halfway there. Uh, uh, someone like someone like Paul Keating has that uh, he has a that knowing uh, uh, way of speaking. He's, he talks down to you, you know, and he's he's uh, he's got that sort of little thing where he knows more than you do, you know, and. Uh, there are there are little keys that you you pick up on. Well, tell me about Pauline Hanson, which is one of yeah. my favourite characters that that, uh, that you portray. <laughs> yes. um, how, how did you begin to craft her? What did you kind I of know, hone in on? I just knew I could play her, yeah. and I knew I could play the Queen. I knew I could play um, Gina Reinhardt. Uh, there are some you just know you can do it, hmm. and there are certain attitudes. With Pauline Hanson, there's certain... I mean, my voice doesn't sound like hers. um, It's not something I can do. Um, It still sounds like a man putting on a a woman's voice. The Queen's voice is different. That's because there's age in there as well. Yes, which tends to deepen deepen the voice. Margaret Thatcher had quite a a baritone voice. That's right, Mm. that's true. But it's also... she. it's, it's, It's frail and it's... It's slightly crackling. It's like an old, old radio. <laughs> you know. um, but Pauline Hanson, there are certain words, like, like Australian. If you just get the intonation right and uh, slip off your your vowels and uh, like the, the Pauline Hanson One Nation Party and just draw things out of it even though it's a stretch and it's pushing it into caricature to some extent yeah. once the audience hear it they believe it and <laughs> they believe it for the rest but again it's um it's attitude yeah and uh and she's uh, she's not the brightest and and I think most of the scripts that I've written for her have you rely pretty much on malapropism to mm. to get your laughs and and to and to make a point uh, and irony 
you know, because she's she's not aware of the, some of the dumb things that she's saying. No. <laughs> but, uh, but 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 yeah, there, and there is uh, that. I I used to love doing Alexander Downer because again, there's that Adelaide accent, and and just saying Adelaide, the way Alexander Downer would say it, or the Liberal Party. It's the they they put you into the the right place. There's a music to these personalities too, isn't there? It? Is very it's, much. It's, it's learning how to sing, perform, play yeah. that music. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is. Um, and some allow you to do, like Bob Carr allows you to do a poem, because he he loves the sound of his own voice. Um, he he took voice lessons very early on uh, to deepen his voice, to play it, put it into a right place, and his um, uh, sense of sentence structure structure is uh, very acute, and and his sense of history is 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 excellent. Mm. So it allowed me to to um, do the Samuel Taylor Coleridge poem Kubla Khan, uh, which is quite a complex poem and and the structure is it, it moves all over the place and uh, and and it was great fun writing it and and very difficult but it just it it is so easy to do as Bob Carr because he he would and I do relish the poetry the mm. the, the structure the of words it. yeah uh, and also, um, and sometimes you, like I did an Alan Joyce many years ago, I wrote a piece uh, in the, the vein of um, James Joyce, when um, Alan Joyce was having trouble with, with the unions. And I just wrote that as a, this Irish ramble. And I didn't, I did it with an Irish accent, but it wasn't, it wasn't James Joyce. Uh, it wasn't Alan Joyce's um, little squeaky voice. I, I just put on a, a mock Irish voice and and let it let it flow. And I think the audience believed it was Alan Joyce mm. or James Joyce. Or <laughs> and I suppose their their knowledge of the of James Joyce and Alan Joyce, or their lack of knowledge, and what you provide allows them to fill in all of the the, the holes. I think they do. Yeah, and access. Yeah, the audience has to do a lot of work, mm. and and I think the more work they do, the more they enjoy it. I think um, some of our sillier pieces, they they like to just go, <laughs> yeah, that's funny, yeah, that's funny, oh yeah, that's funny. <laughs> but the more they think and go, oh yeah, that that's 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 funny and that's clever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but. Uh, I remember a Bob Ellis that you did also. Oh, I love doing Bob Ellis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a uh, bookshelf of Bob, Bob Ellis there. And <laughs> because cause there, there's a fellow that, that I imagine you, you knew Bob reasonably well. I knew Bob very well, yeah. Um, he he would come, I think, one year he came 14 times to the show. Uh, he would drag along politicians and he'd pay for them to come. He, Well, I love Bob. Bob and I knew Bob from a very early age. When he was skinny, <laughs> uh, yeah, and I love doing it because Bob, 
Bob was a great writer uh, and a very poetic writer. He had a, a, one, a wonderful sense of history and a wonderful sense of poetry and an amazing memory. I think he was on the spectrum, there's no mm. doubt about it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, he, um, yeah, I, I love doing him. Uh, and I think from um, reading his writing, I learnt a lot too. It, I used to just, in the early days of the Nation Review, when he would write for them back in the in the seventies, uh, I'd always, I, his, you know, hyperbole was a big part of his writing, but way over the top. But it was just done so beautifully, and and it was always funny and biting and angry and dynamic and it was just yeah I, yeah, I just loved it and um, yeah people like that I, I think were, were, have been a big influence on me mm. um, I was actually writing a play with him when he died mm. <laughs> yeah mm. um, I put that aside you're a very accomplished wordsmith I imagine that books figured quite prominently in your childhood not as much as uh, movies and right. and radio. Um, so it's still a source of words? Yeah, yeah. like The Goon Show was right. very big. And going to the Saturday matinee as a child, uh, seeing um, the Marx Brothers and Laurel and Hardy and Jerry Lewis and Norman Wisdom and <laughs> all, the, all the ones that... I was saying to Phil Scott recently that because he and I both love the Marx Brothers and when we were kids we both loved them but our favourite was Harpo who never said a said word a word, yeah. Yeah. but uh, was a, a great clown. It was later that we understood that what Groucho was saying <laughs> and how funny the words were yeah, yeah. and S.J. Perlman <laughs> words quite often yeah. but a lot of a lot of Groucho himself but all those film comedians that, that you mentioned then have, have come out of vaudeville they did yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah I love vaudeville and are very physical with the words yeah yeah absolutely yeah. Um, and Norman Wisdom I mean he was hysterical yeah. I, I don't know how bright he was as, a, as an actor but as a physical comedian he was un unparalleled you know yeah. what he could do with a deck chair mm. was amazing um, uh, Jerry Lewis was, uh, was a great favourite of mine uh, it's the persona that was always in those films as the as the, the idiot yeah. if you like I yeah. remember seeing him interviewed for the first time and he was a very dignified down to earth yeah. straight shooting fellow yeah I don't think I would have liked him as a person no he looked like a real grunt didn't he yes he did <laughs> and, and, and up himself yeah <laughs> but uh, I think Jerry Seinfeld does a, a good interview with him yeah. Which is very in, uh, interesting. Well, comedians in cars, is it? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it is in that one. Um, but yeah, that was a big influence. Um, but if, yeah, I did, I did read a lot. Um, but uh, I think, again, I think my favourite book of the, as a child was Pakun by Spike Milligan. Right. Uh, 
and that was when the, I, I, I just wanted things that, to make me laugh. And, and it's what I did as a kid. I tried to make other people laugh. Were you the class clown? Yeah, I'm afraid I was. Yeah. Oh, there's nothing wrong with being no. a class clown. <laughs> well, it was a way to survive, yeah. especially when you went to a boarding school. Right. Um, yeah. Um, but uh, I had a good English teacher too. At boarding school, and I had a good uh, teacher at primary school, who uh, actually appreciated my jokes, and I'd often have to stay back afterwards. And when I'd stay back to do detention with her, her daughter would come across from the Catholic school to the state school, and and have to sit there because the the teacher was um, overseeing the detention where a few of us naughty boys mostly were and we didn't really do anything we just cracked jokes she was fantastic she used to laugh at my jokes and it, it was I think my greatest education mm. was um, to have an audience like yeah, that who, who yeah, got you yeah. yeah and then my teacher who was the the school chaplain our English teacher an Englishman who um who just loved poetry. Uh, and that's where I, you know, got to know Coleridge and, and all of those poets. And um, and he, um, we were doing Fire on the Snow as our, one of our plays at the time. And another boy in the class said, why don't we do a, a, a reading of this on the stage for the, the rest of the school? And he directed it, and he was in it, and he cast me as Captain Scott. And we did this reading, and I really enjoyed that. And then uh, in our final year at, at boarding school, the young Elizabethan theatre players came around doing potted versions of Shakespeare. This particular year, they were directed by Alexander Hay, uh, Martin Harris was in them, and Kiralee Nolan, uh, a couple of other people who are, whose names have slipped my mind at the moment. But Kiralee Nolan was this beautiful actress, um, beautiful looking, and and a very good actress. And all the kids at school fell in love with her, and she actually stayed in one of the apartments attached to one of the dormitories uh, with the, the housemaster and his family. They were billeted out. Uh, anyway, this other fellow noticed that she'd gone to NIDA, as in the, all the other actors had been to NIDA as well. So and he, Alexander Hay was a teacher at NIDA too, wasn't he? Not at that point. At I, that I point think right. he was... He, he became a teacher later. Right. Um, but he was a, a, a well-known actor here in Sydney. I'd never heard of him. Uh, <laughs> never <laughs> heard of any of them. Who's, did you, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? That's right, he right, did, yeah, yeah. with Jackie Cott, yeah. who died just recently. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, Godfrey, this other actor, other person... Student uh, in your another student in your drama club or in well we weren't a club really we were just 
we just did happen to do that one. Love performance. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he no say what went to NIDA. He wrote away to NIDA for an application form. And so uh, I thought, oh, I'll do that too. And we both got in that year, 1968. You must have been quite a young applicant, were you? 17 or 18. Um, yeah. And another kid from... I, I grew up in Atherton on the Tablelands. The school was at Charter Towers, the boarding school. And uh, another kid that I was in grade five with turned up that year as well. He'd got in. He was at boarding school in Cairns. And when we got there, there was a girl who was in grade five with us, already there in second year doing the production course, Elizabeth Johnson, who's now married to Herbie Hemphill, who does Hemphill's Herbs. <laughs> and Herbie was in, 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 in our first year. <laughs> in Hartford, Hereford. Yes, yeah, so there were four, four kids, that, four of us that had been to school together in that year at NIDA out of a very small number of people that were taken so it was quite extraordinary anyway Godfrey went on to become he left after about halfway through the year and uh, became Bishop of Rockhampton instead but still a very theatrical role yeah, absolutely yeah. still sort of a, a captive audience yeah I don't know how I got on with that but uh, uh, but Caroline Nolan and the, the young Elizabethan players yeah yeah and 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 when, when I got to um, NIDA, Kiralee was doing a third year course there, which was just a, it was a two year course. Yes, for a long time, I think, back, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And people were, allowed, were invited to come back. Uh, and Kiralee and Sandy Gore came back that year just to do some extra uh, speech work study, and yeah. movement work and things like that. And so we'd see her walking around the, the, um, the, the courtyard outside Top Tote and the Old Tote and the the, uh, the clubhouse and anyway I, if, I, if, I got to know her if the young Elizabethan players hadn't come and performed in Charter's Towers at that time do you, do you think you still would have found your way to, to NIDA and I don't think I performance? would I don't no. think I would have no I think I would have uh, I don't know been a used car salesman <laughs> something like that <laughs> I don't know gone to the bank or I don't know no, what I would have done. Were your folks happy about a career in the arts that um, you were going off to, to drama they school? They were a bit... They were a bit... They'd rather I'd become a lawyer. Right. They wanted me to go to university and do arts law. That's Well, that's what my mother wanted. My dad wasn't too sure, but they supported me and they were... And they... And I went straight from NIDA into the Alto Theatre Company, and they would love, they loved coming down and, and seeing the plays, and they were as, as proud as every, anything. They they thought it was they, they thought it was worthwhile. I think. Good. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember what you did as an audition for NIDA? Yeah, I did um, a speech from Hamlet, and um, a, a Thornton Wilder piece. From the matchmaker, or uh, no, I think it was Cornelius. Yes, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, it was Cornelius. Yeah, <laughs> it's been around. I did that for my. Did you? Too. 
I suppose um, people are still doing it. Isn't the world a wonderful place? That's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 That's a great piece. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I didn't have a clue what it was about. <laughs> I don't know that I knew what this Hamlet piece was about either. Right. Um, and I think I did it in a kind of mock Laurence Olivier kind well, of way. And I, as I suppose a lot of people did at that time I because that so. was the, 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 one of the only reference points. Yeah. I would have been terrible. <laughs> but you got in. You I got, got in. in. And Bob, Bob Ellis always, always laughs that my uh, final piece at, at, at my agent's audition which is the, the, the piece that, you know, actors do at their, their last um, piece at NIDA. I did um, uh, Virginia Woolf. I did George's speech about, you know, bourbon. This ageing university professor done by an 18-year-old <laughs> pimply kid. <laughs> Bob Ellis always remembered it. And laughed that I had the hide to do it. And the other piece I did was um, a Gilbert and Sullivan piece. Um, uh, um, if you give me your attention, I will tell you what I am. Uh, that, that piece, um, which I've since done as uh, Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> but uh, yeah, two very odd choices. But. <laughs> So it was the, the old tote connected mm. to NIDA in some way? Then? Yeah, the old tote, um, the old tote grew out of NIDA. Right. Uh, Robert Quentin uh, set up NIDA in 1959. Robin Nevin was part of that first year. First year, right? John Gregg, Tommy Dysart, um, and then I think around about. I'm not absolutely sure, but I think around about 1963 or thereabouts, the old tote was formed. And but it all came out of the University of New South Wales. Uh, Robert Quentin was head of drama there, and he was very much the the mover of, of the whole thing. And it was done with the backing of the Elizabethan Theatre Trust and. Uh, um, Nugget Coombs was a big supporter of the arts at the time and uh, they all made it happen. Uh, and Tom Brown was the first director of NIDA. And he was a, a designer, basically. And it was him who I did my audition for. Um, in 1960, at the end of 1968, Tom retired or resigned as uh, as director, and John Clark became the director of NIDA. Right. And was there for 40 plus years. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. He was. He was our history of uh, a theatre teacher, and a very good one too. Um, I still use things that he taught. Uh, I did a version of Under Milkwood, as um, where we were talking about Julia Gillard, who's the, the now the Queen of Australia. Have you heard the news? Have you heard the news? Our Julia from the little town of Barry 
she's the Queen of Australia. Oh my goodness me. <laughs> so, and I remember John teaching us um, under Milkwood, talking about under Milkwood, studying under Milkwood. Um, and you got to do that at the Sydney Theatre Company, didn't you? I got what? You got to do under Milkwood at SAC. Oh yeah, that's right, yeah. I did, yeah. yeah. Um, I think our version with the review came before that though. Right. I think it may have sparked, um, it was Andrew Upton's idea to do it and he was going to direct it but he handed it over to Kip. That's Kip right. Williams. He had to... And I think it was Kip's first major production of yeah, the SDC. Yeah. Flying Solo. Yeah. But he also, uh, one of the big things he did was doc- with John Clark back in 68. I remember doing Dr. Faustus which I, I absolutely loved and and I've used a couple of times, notably in this current production where I play Murdoch as a, a form of Dr. Faustus, talking with Mephistopheles, who's come to fulfil the, the deal. Yeah. Uh, but I did I did a version very early on with uh, Rupert uh, with um, um, oh Philip Ruddock who was uh, the immigration minister, who'd gone from being a, a, a wet liberal and a member of Amnesty International to wanting to become the Attorney General and doing a deal with the devil, John Howard, to block in the refugees uh, so that he would then become on, get on the inside of Howard's team and become Attorney General, which was, which was the deal he did, as, yeah, which we performed as Dr. Faustus. And so over a career as an actor, you, you were building up all sorts of repertoire and knowledge, which is, is now feeding into Yeah, very material. much so, I yeah. think, yeah. yeah. I mean, I did, did Rupert Murdoch as King Lear. I wrote a, a King Lear, which was a, a, a very ambitious piece to do. Uh, where he was dividing up his kingdom, uh, but it was that was 2011, which was the year that uh, his the most humble day of his life, mm. when the the news of the world collapsed and he was brought before the the Leveson inquiry to explain his actions, and uh, so that it was a rather long piece and a very dramatic and serious piece, and I remember. Tom Stoppard came to see the show one night and came back afterwards and said, this piece should be, that piece should be on in London right now. Get it over there. <laughs> That's a lovely pat on the back. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, uh, I remember we did, uh, well, we didn't, I didn't. I was uh, at NIDA when the old tote did uh, as their, two of their main plays Hamlet and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead and they were done with the same cast just interchanging so the Hamlet in in the Hamlet became well actually didn't become the Hamlet Tim Elliott played Hamlet brilliantly and Hamlet's a tiny role in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern it's a very tiny role somebody else played it in in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern but yeah Tim Elliott and um, Neil Fitzpatrick were Hamlet and and um Horatio in the Hamlet production, and they were Rosencrantz Guildenstern in the Rosencrantz Guildenstern the Dead production. Ron Hadrick played 
Claudius and was Claudius in the the Stoppard and the woman that played Gertrude was the, uh, Gertrude in both productions and and Ophelia and Laertes and all of those were all of the same um, Barry Lovett played Polonius in the Hamlet and played the player King brilliantly in um, in the Stoppard uh, they, were, they were both wonderful productions we were understudies the students at NIDA in the Hamlet and the, the, the Stoppard I actually got to play a small role in the Hamlet I played the sailor that brought a letter on to, to uh, Horatio I had about I had about five lines uh, and you can imagine I enjoyed that <laughs> but <clears throat> they left their mark on me those those productions that production of Robin Lovejoy did of both of those were were brilliant productions they were excellent well you mentioned some some wonderful actors there Ron Hadrick and, and Neil Fitzpatrick and yes. um, off mic earlier we were talking about Gloria Dawn yes as a young actor who were the the senior actors of the industry who ah. you were you were admiring and well um, mentored by those Ron Hadrick particularly Neil Fitzpatrick he insisted that Gloria Payton the the head of the ICS the the major agency actors agency at the time he insisted that she take me on on her books uh, so he had, he had a huge influence on me but Ron Hadrick above all I think as a man and an actor first and foremost as a, as a human being wonderful wonderful man yeah. and a fantastic actor great human being wonderful person Ruth Cracknell was um, uh, a great friend and uh, uh, was our witness at our wedding in, in London I think she mentions it in her book was the highlight of her her season in London um, John Bell John came back to Australia in 90, late 1969, early 1970. He became the acting teacher at NIDA. And Peter Carroll was the voice teacher. Uh, Anna Volska uh, did a couple of plays at the Old Toad and I was a member of the company and she she played um, Major Barbara in Major Barbara and I played a couple of roles in in that and got to know her very well we toured that around the regions the Tote used to tour do two tours a year one to the north of New South Wales and one to the west. And I mentioned, other than the commercial company, you know, J.C. Williamson's and people yeah. producing commercial fare, the old tope was probably the only uh, workplace for actors. Yeah, uh, that and the ensemble. Right. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, the ensemble was, under, under Hayes Gordon, was very much a, um, a melting pot for lots of actors. And, um, and Hayes would do mostly American 
plays, but, but lots of others as well. But that was his background, and and the um, the the Atlas Studio type of uh, the method method and, uh, the method yeah, yeah. Um, was was what he taught, and he did classes, and um, but it was very much a a, a co-op theatre that uh, and uh, and spawned a lot of terrific actors. Lorraine Bailey and Reg Livermore. Yeah, Reg Livermore, Max Phipps, um, yeah. Max Cullen. So yeah, that was that was a big, big uh, uh, melting pot for 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 actors. But but the old tote and and neither were more the classical theatre. John Bell. Uh, I got to know Anna very well during uh, Major Barbara. Uh, and through Anna, I, I, I got to know John. I remember bumping into him uh, as I was walking down High Street past Nida. He was coming up. Well, no, he was coming down as well because they lived in Randwick, I think, with the, the two young daughters, Hilly and Lucy. And um, we, were, he, we were walking down High Street, he, me going to the Toad, him going to, to Nida, and he introduced himself and just started chatting and... Uh, I think he'd seen Major Barber, and he, I thought, George, what a lovely guy. He was so open and friendly and just easy to get along with, and I think that was the first time I m- met him, really. And then the next year, he... I don't know whether he was still at NIDA, but anyway, he did Arturo Ui, uh, and Richard Werrick directed it. This was 1970, and at the end of 1970, I was uh, offered a, to join a new company, which was going to open a theatre in Kings Cross, which was just an old um, stable. Stable, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. That's what it was. Yeah, uh, which is Nimrod, and on, on Nimrod Street, and it was going to be called the Nimrod Theatre Club, and. First of all, we had to build the theatre, uh, set it up and put seats in and clean the toilets and fix the place up and turn it into some kind of theatre. So the construction was happening at the same time as we were rehearsing a play called Biggles, which was written by Michael Boddy, Marcus Cooney and Ron Ron Blair. Blair. Mm. And Bob Ellis did one song that went in it. And he came almost every night to laugh at that particular moment. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we did we did Biggles with uh, John Hargraves playing Biggles, Peter Rowley playing uh, Bertie and me playing Ginger, Anna Volska was playing various characters, Jane Harders, um, Mervyn Drake playing s- several characters and, and the piano. Michael Boddy playing the uh, the the villain, and even Ken Haller came on as as his offsider a couple of times. Uh, it was huge fun, and um, it was it was that vaudeville quality that John infused into the production. Also with Michael Boddy, Michael Boddy's uh, Michael Boddy was our uh, history of theatre teacher in our last year at NIDA and he his 
history of theatre was telling jokes <laughs> and jokes that that told things about theatre and uh, just told us about vaudeville and uh, and his experience in in England. He was a doctor. He he done a medical had a medical degree and um, uh, but he was just this. He was an amazing man. He was six foot four or something and, wow. and about 24 stone and but with a just this wonderful sense of of vaudeville and comedy and it was just so much fun um but that was a great production well john john did several productions at the old toad at the old toad yeah. he did um arturo Ui. uh he directed a piece which was based on The Servant of Two Masters called How Could You Believe Me When I Said I've Been Your Valet When You Know I've Been a Liar All My Life, which was just a vaudeville piece with lots of songs from like Vo, Vo, Vio, Vodo, Do, Dioto and all that sort of stuff. Those old numbers from the 30s that were sprinkled throughout. Uh, And it was done with a a wonderful company of Melissa Jaffer and uh, Robin Ramsey, Ron Hadrick, um, Kiralee Nolan was in it um, uh, Robin Nevin and I played a kind of Judy Garland and a Mickey Rooney couple of characters uh, the lovers um, and it was and we actually did a workshop with the, the Rudos Ballet Company who were vaudevillians and they, they were acrobats basically and we, we, they came and taught us all these acrobatic tricks uh, and I think Ron Hadrick and I were the only two that didn't have to go to an osteopath. <laughs> <laughs> Him because he was fit and I was because I was young. <laughs> we learned fencing, uh, all of those sorts of things. We learned tap dancing. And, um, and then Johnny Lockwood and Gloria Dawn came and gave us lectures on, on vaudeville. John took us off to a, a cinema to, to watch films of, of the Marx Brothers. Uh, he did a he did a production of um, um, the Good Woman of Setswan, uh, and we kind of studied vaudeville for that. We studied Charlie Chaplin for that because Breck was very much into Chaplin. Robin Lovejoy did a an Australian version of. The Taming of the Shrew, uh, where John played Petruchio and I played Grumio, the servant, where we had chooks and dogs on stage and uh, chooks that would wander off into the audience and I'd have to run out there and get them. It was a, Again, it was a kind of knockabout, vaudeville kind of Aussie larrikin show, which was, which was Robin Lovejoy's uh, idea. We also did um, the government inspector, which John played the the inspector, and I played the the postmaster, with a product with a cast of Gary McDonald, Terry Bader, um, Neil Fitzpatrick, um, uh, Ron Hadrick. I, oh, it was a huge cast. Uh, Helen Morse, Melissa Jaffa, uh, Chris Hayward. Uh, John Hargraves. That's quite a roll call. Uh, it's an incredible, <laughs> incredible cast. Um, and I think 
John and Chris were just playing servants <laughs> in that. Um, uh, we did a musical that year that Reg Livermore wrote called Lassiter, and Jim Sharman directed it. Sandy McKenzie wrote the music, beautiful music, along with Patrick Finn, Flynn. Flynn. Yeah, yeah. So the relationship so, with John has been... It's a huge... Huge relationship, uh, I mean, which puts into perspective even more the wonderful um, uh, companionship, relationship on stage that you had when I saw Big River and you played oh, the yeah, king. that's right. And he was a Jew. That's right, yeah. Scene-stealing yeah. roles, which yeah, yeah, which Michael Wright, who was the, the director, allowed us. The the music musicals, and they still do, come out with a book, and you have to abide by the book. Everything has to be done by the book. You can't from invent the, the book, from meaning the, the the Broadway production, the, Broadway the, production, the blueprint of yeah, of the, yeah. and uh, and that production was done by the book, except for the Duke and the King, and and Michael said do what you like uh, and uh, we had a great time <laughs> we shared a dressing room for over a year and um, yeah so yeah I've had a John was a a huge mentor uh, a great encourager and one of the I always knew when something was working when John was laughing when he was directing and laughing I knew it was working and that happened with Venetian Twins and Comedy of Errors and Servant of Two Masters. And was, I, I could come up with something and if John laughed, it was in. Twins, twins, peas in a pod. Double your blessings, a bonus from God. Each has a nimble, each has a mole. Castor and Pollux, two halves of a whole. Well, let's talk about Venetian Twins, because I believe that was, I mean, that is an Australian musical which uh, I would put in my top five oh. musicals. And it was a piece that was written for you, I understand. Yeah, um... I think uh, Nick took the idea to to John. I think he did. Right? Yeah. yeah, he did. Well, um, it was during the crossover between the old tote, which had gone bankrupt, and the Sydney Theatre Company, which was being formed to take over the role of the of the tote <coughs> as a, as the state company, and each separate company, the ensemble. The Paris Theatre Company, which was a company that Jim Sharman had formed for the Paris Theatre that has since been knocked down, like many other theatres. NIDA, Penrith... The Q? Q. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and Nimrod. So they were looking for a production. Nimrod were looking for a production to put into that season, which was the interim season at the Opera House. Uh, and... I'd just done a production with John of Comedy of Errors where I played one of the Dromeos, the twins. John McTurnan played the other one. Tony Sheldon played my master. I can't remember the name of the chap who played uh, John's master. Anyway, uh, it was, an, again, it was set on a, a merry-go-round 
that was designed by Larry Eastwood. Uh, fabulous sets uh, and there was lots of comings and goings and lots of again vaudeville and knockabout comedy. Um, and I think Nick saw that and said to John, why don't we write a version of uh, the Venetian Twins with me playing both twins. And so he went, and John said, well, go away and write it. <laughs> and he did. Nick was in Adelaide at the time. At so he would just... South Australian Theatre Company, was he? He was working with... At the as South, an associate. He, or, as an yeah, associate, yeah. yeah. And um, he would send versions up and we would play with them and send them back to him and he'd send them back and say, yes, why not? <laughs> and so... And he and Terry Clark wrote brilliant songs, and uh, yes, yeah, so because there's this pastiche of sort of Weimar, yeah, violish, um, operetta, a bit yeah. of everything. Yeah, it's great. And great a song. real, yeah, eclectic piece. And Did Terry was in the original production too. And again, Terry was a great encourager. Again. We, he'd be sitting at the piano as musical director during rehearsals and we'd have to stop while Terry laughed. <laughs> and it's a great big ah, belly laugh. Ah, 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 he would go. And, and he would do it on stage when we were performing because the band was on stage as well. And uh, it was just such fun. And I remember... Like sometimes on oh, there was a Saturday morning we were rehearsing, and I remember I'd had, I'd had one coffee too many, and went away and was looking at a scene that just wasn't quite working, and came back with an idea. I said to John, "Why don't we have an, a handbag planted in the audience? I go down, pinch it from the lady, make it look like we've taken this lady's handbag, and we just rewrote the scene based around this idea." Go away and write it. <laughs> wrote it. Because um, Nick was very open to... He was uh, fantastic. Having a great from collaborator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and he made a point of that. Uh, in plays like that. Yeah. He did more serious plays. Mm, which of course. were very much his own. And this was very much his own. The, the songs were, were terrific. They're fantastic. They were, the, the lyrics... Uh, and the lyrics came first. Terry would write the music to, to fit the lyrics mm. and, and that's a real skill uh, and, the, and the tunes are fantastic Well Jindy Warabak, you know which uh, is absolutely wonderful with echoes of um, The Road to Gundagai yeah yeah, yeah, yeah yeah, it's wonderful Ten miles from the gammon There's a little one horse town Ten miles beyond the gamo as the crow flies And ten miles from the gamo Gonna put my saddle down And never mind the mozzies or the blowflies I'm going back on the track to G. 
an old-fashioned shack back in Jindy Waterback. And it's the grandest home in all of Italy. I'm a small town boy, never meant to be a loner. Don't wanna see Perugia, I don't wanna see Cremona. And I'll never, ever, ever have to see Verona. Back in Jindy Waterback, blowing my sack to be back in Jindy Waterback. Even though the pubs all close at ten Get back the knack, don't be slack Back in Jindy Waraback Where the girls are women and the boys are all men Oh, I'm ready for the action at the town hall dances Wearing Californian poppy Gonna take my chances With a girl who's learned the ropes from reading true romances Back in Jindy Waraback Jindy Waraback is dusty, Jindy Waraback is windy, Jindy Waraback is on the beaten track, but if you want a shindy then you can't be Jindy, it's sleepy, it's some more, but Jindy Waraback, Jindy Waraback is all too, I ever dreamed of, better believe me, I'm going back on that track. Lug me pack on me back, back to Jindy Waraback, cause I'm making Jindy Waraback me hometown base. You can keep your Perugia, you can stuff Ramona, or even Etchy Roma, Addio Verona, cause I bought a little FJ, only had one owner. Come back to Jindy, not much, I'm an Indy. Come back to Jindy, not back to Gunda Windy. Back to Jindy, it is a royal pindy. Come back to Jindy, to Windy Jindy. Back to Jindy, Jindy, Waraback. Jindy, Jindy, Waraback. So the, the, the twins, Tonino and Zanetto, hmm. developing those those identities, those those personas. Hmm. What what uh, comedians from your past? Are you influenced by? Where, when you, how did you, did you build those characters? I well, Stan Laurel was a, a huge influence, and and Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. I love their physical comedy, but I love st- the kind of the innocent that Stan Laurel played, uh, and that's very much what I brought, I think, to the Zanetto character and the Tonino. I don't know what I don't, I don't know what that was based on. Just some arsehole that <laughs> you know, <laughs> was up himself, yeah. uh, and that was that was. I think uh, I almost preferred playing him to. Well, I, I love playing both of them, but I think I preferred playing Tonino because he was he just so up himself. Yeah. And that's a great character to play. Oh yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I I don't know what it was based on. I think it was probably based on Errol Flynn and all of those, those swash, swashbuckling swash, swash characters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that that was it. And yeah, yeah, it was, and it was great fun, and it went on for many. Yeah, a couple years. of revivals, didn't you? Yeah, we did one in 1981, which uh, when my son was born on the week after the opening night. <laughs> And then we went on on tour with that to several places, Melbourne and 
Uh, and then I, I then we did another version in 1990 uh, that the Queensland Theatre Company and John Frost produced. There have been other versions, many other versions of it, but I haven't. I am handsome and fine as a study by Titian, as calm as a monk in his cloister. For I'm a patrician and I'm a Venetian. The world is my oyster. I'm engaged to a beauteous lady in Venice. We love and we honor each other. Her father considers that I am a menace. He offers her hand to another, and he'll drag her to church on a rope. The two of them think that they own her. But she loves me so much she agrees to elope. And I send her along to Verona. But wasn't that foolhardy to defy her father and suitor? Foolhardy? Never! Never, never cross a true Venetian. Never cross a man of my degree. Never cross a man who laughs at life. Aha! Oh, one who eats spaghetti off his knife. Oh, one who's found a true loving wife. Oh, never, never cross a man like me. Tell me about working with Tyrone Guthrie. Oh. <laughs> well, that was um, that was Oedipus, and that was uh, Ron Hadrick and Ruth Cracknell as uh, Oedipus and Jocasta, and the wonderful uh, Ron Falk playing Tiresias, and Barry Lovett playing the the, the shepherd. Uh, that was uh, a group of us were the chorus basically um, and that was just like a, a voice lesson really where he would try to get us to speak English and not Australian he would say say moon to me moon <laughs> now say it in English Moon. <laughs> uh, was he a taskmaster? Yes, he was very strict and very aloof. He had more to do with with Ron and Ruth yeah. and uh, and Princels. and Ron Falk and and the, uh, the the primary characters. He treated us like a chorus, really, and a choir, and uh, and uh, and just told us where to go and how fast to go and how slow to go and, uh, and when to crouch get out of the way and uh, it was yes it was like a director of traffic really yeah. but uh, and it was it was a huge production massive production with lots of fire and effects that you couldn't do today WHS and uh, yeah you'd never yeah. be able to do it yeah. um, but the, the the chorus that we had in Sydney the, the the no we were the chorus the, the the townspeople that were also part of the production was this massive cast of people like Pamela Stevenson Wendy Hughes John Hargraves Ted Robinson was one of them I mean this Lex Marinos um, a massive assorted people that went on to be a big part of the Sydney theatre yeah but look a a big part of my education also came from the people that I worked with, like John Gaydon, um, Arthur Dignam, the people that the um, Ron Blair, uh, Bob Ellis, 
these people that spent a lot of time at Sydney University during the 60s and were all who were also um, very much connected to the the era that went just slightly before them of um, Germaine Greer or Germaine Greer was very much their their part uh, Clive James yeah. Robert Hughes was was around then and the early mid and mid 60s there was a melting pot of, of people that were 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 talking to one another, uh, drinking together, uh, doing amateur theatre, uh, doing the Suds productions uh, at the University of New South Wales. There was, but yeah, the, the, these people were around, and and they were influencing one another, and uh, they. I, I, and John Bell was around then as well. He he joined the old tote in. In 1963, I think it was a production that he did, or he did a production of Henry the the Fifth for the Elizabethan Theatre Trust in in a tent. Um, so, and then there were people like um, Nugget Coombs who were encouraging uh, money being spent on the, the Elizabethan Theatre Trust and, and developing places like the Old Tote and NIDA. Uh, so there was a, a groundswell that was happening. And, and these people very much influenced the, the, the way theatre happened in the 70s, where it went from being this imitation of English theatre to a more Australian version Creating of our, our own, own theatre. Yeah. yeah. And, in, and, and it, it was happening at the... the um, La Mama. And, La Mama uh, and, and... The Pram Factory. Pram Factory, thank you. Mm. Where David Williamson came from. And, um, and the Pram Factory, again, was a, a knockabout kind of theatre that, yeah. that was happening. You uh, took Williamson's work a couple of times to London. So you took, yeah, out, took right. our voice yeah. uh, to, yeah. to the Poms in, in the club and what have you died tomorrow? Yeah. What was that like? What was that experience like playing great. Australian plays for an English audience? The first one was um, What Have You Died Tomorrow, which is a terrific play, which was um, commissioned by Robin Lovejoy as one of the opening productions of the Drama Theatre at the Opera House in 1973. So there was... Um, uh, Robin did a, a production of Richard II where John Gayden played Richard II and it was a, a, a repertoire of Richard II, Thripney Opera and What If You Die Tomorrow. Uh, Robin directed What If You Die Tomorrow, Richard II and Jim Sharman directed uh, Thripney Opera. Uh, that production which had Ron Hadrick and Ruth Cracknell as, as the parents, kind of based on David's life, I think. Uh, Shane Porteous played a version of David. Kiralee Nolan played, uh, I suppose, a version of Kristen. Anyway, that production went to London in 74. And uh, we played at the Comedy Theatre in, in, uh, in London and in the West End. 
and that that was that was fun. It was great. It was terrific. But the production that we took over there of the club, we played at, at the Hampstead Theatre, and then it transferred to the Old Vic, and the reviews were fantastic. Uh, I remember um, Billington, who was one of the main critics at the time, saying uh, English playwrights and directors could learn a lot from this production, and and I think. The quote that came back here in the press was, uh, "I was something negative, you know." Tall poppy syndrome, wasn't it? Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. They said something negative, but you know, not doing terribly well or something. Yeah. Whereas it was, it was praised to the roof in in London. Well, b- business and sport is quite a universal theme, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. It was it was AFL, but yes, but, but they understood any, it. any sport. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, um, yeah did, and again that was Ronnie Hadrick, Ron Graham, Barry Lovett, Jeff Ashby, Ivor Kantz, and myself. A great cast that we started at Nimrod. We played, we played um, at uh, the the Theatre Royal. We played, we played at St George Leagues Club. Ronnie Hadrick used to play Jock, the, yep. the the president of the club, and in the scene, one scene, he'd be sitting at the bar, and there was a, a little bowl of peanuts, and he'd be sitting there with a handful of peanuts, talking about you know this guy and that guy, and then shoving the peanuts in his mouth as he was going. We were invited up to the the boardroom of the St George Leagues Club to meet the the board members. And the president of the St George Leagues Club was sitting at the bar with a handful of peanuts and talking about the football club like that. <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't believe it. It was exactly life imitating art. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was that was wonderful. But the play that David didn't base upon himself was Flatfoot, mm. which was a, uh, a play based on a, a Plautus and trying to get a play up uh, where I played I think 11 characters as I pitched the play to dear John Gregg who was playing Crassus the the, the, the consul who was to put the money up and, and Tina Bursell played my wife but, um, and that was lots of fun lots of fun so, so, so classical theatrical fare, uh, the musical fare, um, and contemporary fare. Are, th- are there different approaches that you take as an actor? I, I, I just love acting, and I think acting. There are different versions and ways you do it, but um, it's pretty much instinctive, really. Um, and I don't know that you can teach that instinct. Mm. I think you can teach people how to do things technically and you'll get good technical actors but it's like sport there are some people that don't have to train they they just turn up on the day and they can do it I love playing tragedy I love it and I think I probably love that more I love playing the Queen in this production because I love being brought to tears by a thought that that uh, takes her by surprise and then snapping out of it mm. and and getting a laugh. Mm. But 
I like to take an audience to the edge of tears for them to feel sorry and then for them to be able to laugh at now it's often often the great great clowns and I consider you one of our great clowns who can access uh, whatever's needed to play tragedy you've got to be able to identify it at some level even with their assholes yeah there's got to be an element of truth in there somewhere yeah somewhere yeah otherwise yeah you've got to be drawn to them Uh, and that's what you've got to look for I guess it's certainly what I look for when I'm writing something even the joy that somebody like I was going to say Rupert Murdoch well I will say Rupert Murdoch I enjoy playing Rupert Murdoch in this production because I'm playing him as an arsehole and because he enjoys what he does he has to enjoy what he does the real Rupert Murdoch has to enjoy putting people like the the the, the people on Fox News in America, giving them that that permission to, to stir up the public, mm. and and to to employ people like Andrew Bolt and Paul Murray and uh, Chris Kenny and Peter Credlin and to to deliberately stir the pot. That's what he's doing. He's he's enjoying it. He he's enjoying being an arsehole. Um, you know Richard the <laughs> Third. It's uh, they've got to be getting pleasure out of something. Your characters have to be enjoying something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Drew, I have enjoyed this this conversation. I could talk theatre with you all day, but I know you've got a five o'clock show that you've got to get to. <laughs> yeah. Um, a can of worms. The Wharf Review. You're you're after Sydney. You're you're touring it. Yep. Yeah. yeah. We're so. heading off to uh, Darwin. Oh, well, we're heading off to Wollongong first, and then then to Darwin. Griffith, Tamworth, Orange, Port Macquarie, Lismore, lots of places, Hobart, Melbourne, um, getting so, around Pen- Penrith and Parramatta and Glen Street, our regulars, and we'll be doing it again next year. We'll be, we'll be back doing a, another Wharf Review, again at the Seymour Centre, and with uh, several other, hopefully uh, going to Brisbane, places like that. Brilliant. So, so listeners, um, who, if you're tuned in around Australia, have a, have a look at the press near you and, uh, and don't miss out on uh, this year's edition of The Wolf Review. Thank you so much, Drew Forsyth. It's, um, it's, a, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for Can of Worms, the much-loved and anticipated annual edition of The Wolf Review, is now playing at the Seymour Centre in Sydney and features my guest today, Drew Forsyth. The Sydney season plays until December 23rd and is followed by a tour that includes Darwin, Dubbo, Tamworth, Wollongong, Wagga Wagga, Wyong, Warrnambool, Narry Warren, Nunnawadding, Lismore, Launceston and Hobart. Check out www.softtread.com for further details. You've been listening to episode 256 of The Stages podcast. There are only five episodes left before we conclude Series 4. I'm Peter Ayers. Thanks for listening. Keep well and stay safe. I'll catch you next time.